He is alive. <laughs> Every day, for nearly a year, I would walk from my flat to King's College there in Aberdeen, Scotland, and I would pass St. Marcus Cathedral. This four, five hundred year old church was nestled there on the cobbled stones and it was surrounded by an overcrowded graveyard. <laughs> Wrapped around these stones, I would walk, take a detour. It sounds rather morbid, but I actually found it quite fascinating. These weathered and worn headstones revealed the names of individuals that had long been forgotten. And as I was, would read the epithets of former bishops and professors and doctors and maybe a few lawyers, I imagined a former time when these men and women would have been sitting in the pews of St. Marcus Cathedral, perhaps singing, When We All Get to Heaven, or the Sweet By and By. <laughs> of course, they're silent now as they're laying there in their grave. But throughout the life of the church, not just in that cathedral, men and women have clung to the hope that this grave is not our final home. There's a day coming when the trumpet will be sounded and they shall ascend to meet one with a distinct northern Galilean accent. <laughs> the basis for this hope, which has echoed throughout 2,000 years of world history, is rooted in the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ, this Jesus of Nazareth. And the resurrection of Jesus has become the cornerstone of the Christian faith. It's the bedrock of our theology. And so it shouldn't be surprising that the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which we refer to as the Gospels, all highlight the glorious event of Christ resurrecting from the dead. I'd like you to turn to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, and we're going to start in verse 42. This morning I would like to do what we did on our Good Friday service, and I'd like us to take look to the text with some fresh eyes, to strip back the, the layers of tradition or things we have assumed about the text and let the text speak for itself. We're going to start in verse 42. It says, Now when evening had already come, since it was the day of preparation, meaning that and Mark tells us it's the day before the Sabbath. Remember, Jesus has been crucified on a Friday. Joseph of Arimathea, a highly regarded member of the council who was himself looking forward to the coming of the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate, this is the Roman governor of the day, and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised that he had already died. And he called the centurion, the executioner, the professional murderer, and asked him if he had been dead for some time, and indeed he was. And when Pilate was informed by the centurion, he gave the body to Joseph. After Joseph, he brought a linen cloth and took down the body. He wrapped it in the linen, placed it in a tomb cut out of the rock, and he rolled a stone across the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene, who's always mentioned first 
when there's a list of women, and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where the body was placed. Father, we come now to this text. These are familiar words. We've rehearsed this scene many, many times. And yet this morning, I pray that you would open our eyes to some freshness. Lord, that our hearts would be pricked with the reality of an empty tomb. Thank you that the cross and the grave wasn't all there was. <laughs> but the ultimate final word was found in an empty tomb. Guide us now as we go to this text. In Jesus' name, amen. You have a set of notes there on your chair if you'd like to follow along. If you're viewing online, those notes are also available to you. We're told in verse 42 that a man named Joseph of Arimathea comes to require or inquire from Pilate if he ha could take down the body. Now there's several things that Mark notes about this Joseph. First of all, he's from Arimathea. He's not from Nazareth. He's not up near the Sea of Galilee. Instead, he's from Judea. In fact, he's from Ramathim Safim, which is the hometown of the prophet Samuel. And you're going, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You would have expected family members to come take down the body. Mary was there when Jesus was crucified. John, the disciple, was there. Wouldn't the disciples have taken down Jesus' body? But Joseph of Arimathea? This is going to testify to the historicity of the account. And we'll get back to this as we, we move through this scene. It wasn't uncommon in the first century for Rome to give permission for family members to take down the victim's body. In 1968, they discovered, some archaeologists discovered, a tomb in the north side of Jerusalem where it is a crucified victim. They know because the nail was infused in the ankle bone. And he was given a proper burial, which would not have happened outside of Palestine in the first century. But we're also told that he's not just Joseph of Arimathea. There are a lot of Josephs, so now we know which one. But we're told that he's a highly regarded member of the council. He's a member of what's called the Sanhedrin. It's a group of 72 very powerful, very influential, and very wealthy men. And it included the high priest. In fact, they're the ones who told Pilate, you will crucify Jesus or we will go to Rome and tattle on you that you let an insurrectionist go. They had Pilate right where they wanted him. John highlights that in his gospel. And so here you have a member of the 72. In fact, John also tells us that Nicodemus joins Joseph of Arimathea. So you have two members of the Sanhedrin. Again, if I'm making up this story, <laughs> it would have been a family member that would have taken down the body, not two members of the Sanhedrin. You would have never suspected that. And here they are. And in fact, we're told that Joseph is highly regarded. So not only does he have a seat on this council. He has a very prestigious role on the council. We know that appointment to the 72 was for a lifetime, similar to our Supreme Court. A position only became available if someone died. And we're also told, Luke tells us in verse 43, that he's looking forward to the kingdom, which indicates to me this is a follower of Jesus. 
Luke tells us he's good and he's righteous. And John tells us in his gospel that Joseph was a secret disciple. We'll get to that in a minute, but clearly, well, clearly Joseph is taking great risk to go to Pilate to take down the body of Jesus. He, he's, he's followed this one, but to make that public with the Sanhedrin, he could lose his seat. In fact, those associated with Jesus could be executed. He also takes risk with Pilate. He's using all his political chips to take down that body of Jesus. One scholar highlights the general aristocratic view of the ancient Mediterranean was that the prominent were the most notorious targets and the prominence often aroused envy, hence hostility from others. There were many Jewish males who would love to have his seat on the Sanhedrin. If they could knock him out, they would take it. And so Joseph takes down this body. Notice what it says here in verse uh, 43. They've gone boldly to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. That term body only occurs one other place in Mark's gospel. And it's reference to the death of John the Baptist. And I think once again our gospel writer is linking the two together. John was the messianic forerunner. Here's the Messiah. What they did to the messianic forerunner, they've done to the Messiah. And notice Pilate's response. He's surprised. Crucifixions, we, we looked at this on Good Friday, normally would last two to three days. Now in Palestine, they gave uh, the Romans, allowed the Jews to take down the body before nightfall due to Deuteronomy 21 and the curse of a body hanging on a tree. And so what they would do is they would take an iron club and break the legs so that the victim couldn't prop themselves up to breathe anymore and eventually their lungs would fill with fluid and they would die. That's why they would put a ledge on the a little platform on the cross to prolong one's life. And they would use that, the victim would do it to prop themselves up. But Pilate shocked, he's already dead? And as we looked at on Good Friday, it was Jesus who gave up his life. No one took it. The centurion didn't do it. The other three soldiers standing at the cross didn't take it. The religious rulers didn't take it. And there's, there's no question here that Jesus just didn't walk away. No victim ever survived a Roman crucifixion. These are professional killers. And the centurion confirms for us, he says, no, he is truly dead. And Pilate said, fine, you, you then can take the body. And the text tells us in verse 46 that when... Jesus, that Joseph brought a linen cloth and he took down the body. He must hurry. Nightfall is coming and that is the Sabbath and they are not to work on the Sabbath. And so this body needs to get in a tomb. Jesus has died at 3 o'clock. By 6 o'clock he needs to be in the tomb. I doubt they spent any time having dinner. <laughs> Imagine preparing this body for burial, washing the blood wrapping it in a shroud, placing spices and closing the eyes. We're told in the text that the women are carefully watching. Otherwise, how would they know where to go on Sunday morning to the tomb? Right? So they're, they're observing all of this. There can be no mistake here as the women went to the correct tomb, as I said, the next morning. 
And notice what Nicodemus does. And Mark highlights this, and so do the other gospel writers. He brings a linen cloth, which is going to be used to wrap the body. They take Jesus down from the cross. Based on the other gospel writers, we know that Joseph had servants and others assisting him. There's no way one man could take down a crucified victim. You also have the nails that are in the base of the hand into the wrist. Those would need to be removed, etc., as they're taking down this body. And they've wrapped him in linen cloth. The chin would be bound around the head, and we know that a veil was put over Jesus' face. It's interesting, as the body is brought down, and it, 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 the text uses a reference here in the Greek. It doesn't refer to the body in the neuter, which you would have expected in Greek. It's referred to in the masculine because this body is going to rise from the dead. It's not an inanimate object. And so he's wrapped in linen cloth with spices. John's gospel tells us that Joseph and Nicodemus bring 75 pounds of spices. When the great rabbi Gamaliel died in the first century, 80 pounds of spices were used. Scholars estimate this was worth 30,000 denarii. And I was doing the math. That is about $4.4 million worth of spices. This was an elaborate burial. Joseph has spared no expense. Remember, he is a member of the Sanhedrin. He's loaded. But nonetheless, he has lavished uh, all of this upon Jesus. In fact, we're told that he's placed in a tomb. And we know elsewhere in the Gospels that this is a new tomb. And it's, there are two types of tombs in the first century. There was a kokim, which was like an oven. The body was placed in that niche. Or there's an aquasolia, which was placed, the body was placed on a shelf. The Jews had a two-stage burial. The body would be placed in the tomb, and a year later they would come and gather the bones and put it in a box. I know, sounds a little gross, but that was the one-year mourning process that was given and we're told that this is a new tomb. And Luke tells us it's an aquasolia, which is a very rare tomb. It would, it would have taken at least 50 work days to cut this stone tomb in place. And Joseph, we know that it is, it is his family tomb. No one has been yet buried, which is also important. Because we're not going to confuse Jesus with another corpse laying there in the tomb. And then we're told that a rolling stone uh, verse 46 is placed across the entrance. These stones weighed 1,500 to 3,000 pounds. And Mark tells us later in verse 4 that it was a very large stone. Which means, no wonder these women weren't sure who was going to move the stone. It weighs the, the amount of a Honda Civic. How are they going to get it from that, in, that trough and roll it back up the hill? In, in order to enter the tomb. Well, this is where it gets exciting. Look at verse 1 of 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought aromatic spices so that they might go and anoint him. They saw the rush job that was done on Friday evening. And now they're going to come back and finish the preparation of Jesus' body. And very early on the first day of the week, Sunday, 
A sunrise, they went to the tomb. They had been asking each other, who will roll away the stone? Great question. The disciples, where are they? <laughs> Why aren't they helping? They're nowhere to be found. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled back. Then as they went into the tomb, I love this. These are brave ladies. They go right into the tomb. They saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there's the place where they laid him. They knew that. They had seen it. They go, go tell the disciples, even Peter, that he is going ahead of you into Galilee. You will see him there, just as he told you. Then they went out and ran from the tomb, for terror and bewilderment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, because they were afraid. Look at this, this marvelous scene that Mark has recorded for us. Uh, several times, Jesus had predicted that he would die and rise from the dead. This is the fulfillment that had been promised. But sadly, where are the disciples? In a locked room, scared spitless. And I suspect it wasn't just Peter who said they would never deny Jesus. They all echoed, chimed right in. There's the guilt. There's the sorrow. There's the shock. And I suspect these women have not slept since Friday. They witnessed it. They were there when the body was taken down. They were there when the body was cleaned. They were there when it was placed in a tomb. And all of these hopes have come crashing down. Where's this one who had promised to rise from the dead? And so they take these spices. And it wasn't to embalm a body. It was to help it not stink so much. But I love what one commentator states. They, the women, are too late because the body, not because the body has begun to decay, but it's no longer there. <laughs> so the text tells us very early on the first day. John tells us it's still dark. Here in Mark, most likely the women left early in the morning before it was light and they arrive at the tomb at sunrise. They don't want to miss a thing. They want to be there firsthand so they might do what they need to do with the body of Jesus. We're talking 6.20 a.m. Sounds like our productions team and our, our worship team this morning. Many thanks for all that they do. But let's go back. It says, why, why, did they, why didn't they just go on Saturday? Because Saturday was Sabbath. They weren't to work on the Sabbath. So they've, they've come the first time they can come. And again, they've not slept. <laughs> they've waited to go back Sunday morning. Why Sunday? Jesus told us that he would rise on the third day. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus would rise on the third day according to the scriptures. You go, wait a minute, Hoffman, you got Friday, Saturday, you got Sunday, where's the three? Because part of a day was considered a day in, in Jewish thought. It is three days. It's a Friday, it's a Saturday, and it's a Sunday. Hosea 6, a minor prophet, writes... As a prophecy of the Messiah's resurrection, he states, Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, 
he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us. So that we may live in his presence, let us acknowledge the Lord. And so the text tells us the stone has been rolled back. It's passive voice. It's similar to saying, we have been so blessed. Who are we referring to? Who's the subject? God. Who's rolled back the stone? God. Not so his son could get out of the tomb. It's so we could go in and see an empty tomb. Our Savior is alive. While they might have been uncertain how they were going to roll the stone, these women, that was not going to deter them. Perhaps they thought Joseph of Arimathea might come back. And whatever the case, they meet this young man who is clearly an angel, I would argue. Angels throughout scripture are portrayed as men. And the white robe gives that away there in verse 5. But notice as well, he's sitting. He is in complete composure. He's not like these women who are scared, spitless, or like the men cowering, the disciples in an upper room. No, no, no. He's sitting. And he's sitting on the right side, indicating authority. And what? notice what he tells these women. He says, first of all, he gives them a word of reassurance, doesn't he? Don't, don't be afraid. God is in control. Easter is just another demonstration or testimony of God's sovereignty. Nothing is going to thwart God's plan. COVID is not going to thwart God's plan. A political party is not going to thwart God's plan. He is in charge. And if nothing else this Sunday morning, Easter morning, we, we, we rejoice. He is victorious, right? Right. Amen. Secondly, this one tells them not only not to be afraid, but he recognizes why they've come, right? He says, you're looking for Jesus the Nazarene. Kind of goes without saying. That's right. That's why they're in this tomb. There's no other bodies laid in this tomb. But it shows, again, omniscience and sovereignty, all-knowing. They're, they're looking for the good shepherd, they're, they're looking for the one who claimed I am, who claimed to be the bread of life, the, the great uh, for the, she the, sh the sheepfold. This is who they've come to look. And I love the angel's response. He gives us the gospel in a nutshell. He says, you're looking for Jesus the Nazarene, the one who took on flesh and dwelt among us, the one who was crucified. He died for our sin. And third, he says he's been raised. There's the gospel. This is what you've looked for. Here it is. Isn't that awesome? He says, here it is. Don't be afraid. He is not here. He promised that to you. And so he, he states the obvious. And it's clear that, that in this reference that has been given, that just as there was a bodily death, there was a bodily resurrection. This isn't some, ooh, something just happened here. No, it is a bodily resurrection like we saw with Lazarus. Like we saw in other accounts in the life of Jesus. And he says he's not present in the tomb. He's not here. I've walked through many times that graveyard at St. Marcus Cathedral. And I never saw a tombstone that said vacant. The, tomb, the, the body's still there. Still rest. But this one? <laughs> vacant. Joseph, thanks for the use of the tomb. Feel free to use it later. We don't need it now. 
<laughs> They're called to look at the very locations. Look for yourself. Don't, don't take what I'm just saying. Look, you know where he was placed. I love John's gospel. Peter runs and, and John to the tomb. Of course, Peter gets there first. But John goes ahead and runs right on in. And he saw the napkin rolled up neatly. Grave robbers don't struggle with OCD. <laughs> and John saw that napkin and he believed. He understood. And these women, he says, look, this is the one. And then, look what the angel states. He says, you need to go and tell those what you have just experienced. And not to just tell anybody. Tell the disciples, and I love this, Oh, and Peter. <laughs> Mark's gospel is most likely the sermons of Peter. It's where Mark penned this narrative from the sermons of the apostle. Peter's the one who denied ultimately the Savior. What forgiveness. What grace. <laughs> Even Peter... He says, go ahead. He's going to meet them in Galilee. And you will see them there. And verses 7 and 8 are such an unusual way to end this whole account. I mean, John, it's gospel. It's whoo, you know. And you end this one. It says the, the women are afraid. And you're going, this is rather abrupt. But when you understand that Mark is pinning his gospel to those who are seeking to follow after Jesus, it's a gospel about discipleship, then it makes it very clear. Peter here in the text reminds us that God forgives and that we need to preserve despite persevere, despite disobedience and failure. The disciples mentioned here remind us that God seeks to have a relationship with us. I'll meet you in Galilee is what has been relayed to the disciples. And finally, the women remind us that we have a message to share, even in the midst of our shock. <laughs> but on a much more grander scale, as we look at this resurrection account of Jesus, what does it mean for us living in 2021? And in your notes, I have a few points I want to give you. First of all, Christ's resurrection is vital to his role as the God-man. The resurrection authenticates our Lord as the true prophet. After all, what did he say? I am the resurrection and the life. No resurrection, Jesus is a liar. No resurrection, stone him. Jesus' resurrection establishes not only his validity as prophet, but as high priest, our advocate, the source of empowerment and head of the church. Our religion is not based upon teachings and a code of ethics. It is based upon a cross and an empty tomb. Our religion is not based upon rules and regulations. It's based upon a cross and an empty tomb. Our religion is not based upon human thought and achievement. It's based upon the cross and an empty tomb. Our religion is not based upon a cosmic being who is distant from humanity. It's based upon a cross an empty tomb. Our religion is not based upon a guru who once lived and left a wonderful life to emulate. It's based upon a cross and an empty tomb. Our religion is not based upon cosmic energy and the force. No. 
It's based upon the cross and an empty tomb. Our religion is not based upon reincarnation and karma. No, it's based upon a cross and an empty tomb. Our Savior gave up his life on a cross and then he rose from a tomb three days later. This Jesus of Nazareth is our Savior, our Lord, and our God. Christ's resurrection is vital to his role as the God-man. It's also essential component of the gospel. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, We have been born anew to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The beginning of the service, I quoted S. Lewis Johnson. He, writes, he states, The resurrection is God's amen to Christ's statement, It is finished. <laughs> May we be reminded that an empty tomb is another indicator that the gospel is the glorious story of Jesus of Nazareth, our Savior, our Lord, and our God. Christ's resurrection, third in your notes, it guarantees victory over sin and joy and living for him. Paul writes to the church at Rome in Romans 4.25, Jesus was put to death for our trans." our sins, our shortcomings, our crud. And he has been raised so that we might be declared right or justified. By virtue of our union with Christ, God's declaration of approval to Christ is also his declaration of approval for us. This past year, we have witnessed COVID and all the havoc that this virus has created and yet, something far more serious than COVID has plagued our society, and it's called sin. <laughs> the death rate to this spiritual virus is 100%. There is no human solution, no vaccine that can cure you. The only way for the antibodies to be created for your sin is through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him and does good works, no. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you're sitting this morning in a, this pew and you're going, I really don't know much about this Jesus. I've kind of done the Christian thing. Someone has joked that people don't realize churches are decorated with more than just poinsettias and Easter lilies. <laughs> and perhaps that's you. you. You seldom frequent the doors of a church. Today, bend your knee before this one who is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Today, this Easter, may you come to know this Jesus of Nazareth, our Savior, our Lord, and our God. Christ's resurrection is vital to his role as the God-man. It's essential to the gospel. It guarantees victory over sin. Fourth, Christ's resurrection grants meaning to our faith and the prospect of hope for the future. 2 Corinthians 4, He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. An empty tomb guarantees our resurrection, our victory over sin. Sadly, many Christians live life as if Jesus is still in the grave. 
He is alive. We don't need to fret, worry, stew, buckle under pressure. He is victorious. As I walked that old graveyard of St. Marker's Cathedral, I was reminded of what death means for those who know Jesus. For the believer, his or her tombstone reads, My death has ended all my sins, my sorrows, my afflictions, my temptations, my oppressions, and my persecutions. But my death is also the resurrection of my hopes, joys, delights, comforts, and contentments. Why? He is not here. He is risen. He is risen indeed. This one we serve is victorious. This Jesus of Nazareth, our Savior, our Lord, and our God. Father, hallelujah. Christ, our Savior, is risen today. It's so easy to get caught up in the traditions, observing Easter, picking out the outfits, getting out the chocolate, that we miss the theological richness and significance that that tomb is empty. It validates your son. It brings healing and life for us as believers and it gives us hope for a future. Thank you for the empty tomb. Thank you for Jesus of Nazareth who is our Savior, our Lord, and our God. And it's in his name we pray.